All right. I'm now joined by Emerson Green, uh, who is the host of Walden Pod and uh, Counter Apologetics. Uh, before we get started with Emerson, just a couple of quick uh, housekeeping notes. So on the YouTube channel, the Thursday night debate breakdown that we'd usually do on Thursday, something we're not doing this week because, uh, you know, I'm escaping. It's my birthday. But uh, we are doing a live stream on Wednesday. More details about that to follow soon. Uh, also, uh, details for both of the events happening in Toronto later this month are out. And I'll make sure to include a um, link to those in the description. But meanwhile, Emerson... Uh, tell the nice people who you are. Hey, man. Um, so, yeah, like you said, I'm the host of Counter Apologetics and Walden Pod. Um, one of them is about philosophy of religion, the apologetics one, and the other one is about my other philosophical interests, which mostly has to do with the metaphysics of consciousness, but sometimes other stuff. Um, but, uh, yeah, and it all ends up on YouTube, on the Emerson Green YouTube channel. So it's kind of decentralized, but... Um, yeah, that's what I do, and yeah, thanks for um, having me on. Even though I understand you don't live here now, it's nice to be talking to a fellow Michigander and admirer of uh, Quentin Smith. Yeah, yeah, Quentin was uh, a professor in my, well, first grad program when I got my MA at Western Michigan. Um, so that would be, that would have been like 2004, 2005. Um so just to uh, just to connect a couple of other dots, I had been originally admitted to the program for fall 2003, but in spring 2003, I was spending all of my time organizing anti-war protests, and I managed to fail like a grad requirement class that like any sentient being should have been able to pass, <laughs> and uh, uh, and so you know I was put off a semester. So it was like January 2004 through December 2005. They were nice enough to hold my assistantship but um but yeah quentin is uh definitely the most memorable professor i've ever had anybody who's curious about that i uh wrote an article about him for arc digital media uh just after his passing called there will be time but yeah that was a that was a beautiful article and you know i grew up around kalamazoo mm -hmm. and um you know much later ended up getting into philosophy of religion and um, was just like, wait, Quentin Smith was in Kalamazoo that whole time? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, then I moved to uh, Grand Rapids, and okay. right, now right now I'm in Ann Arbor because my wife is going to U of M. Okay, got it. Yeah, so yeah, I grew up in East Lansing, and, um, and then I went to, well, I started off college at Lansing Community College, but I finished up at Aquinas College at Grand Rapids, and then went yeah. to Western Michigan for the MA and then finally left the state uh, for the PhD after that. Um, but, all right, so I guess, you know, the the reason that I invited you on is we were having the beginnings of an interesting conversation on Twitter and I thought that it might be, uh, you know, might be something that would be conducive to having an actual conversation, conversation about... Um, which was that I'd posted something about something that, you know, will sometimes annoy, sometimes annoys me that I'll see people and there are different versions of this sort of criticism, of course. Uh, but, um, I, I guess the sort of version of it that sort of immediately set me, set me off is, 
you know, the kind of person who might be really into the history of philosophy, might be really into contemporary continental philosophy, and one of their sort of go-to things for, you know, bashing uh, contemporary analytic philosophy is that they think that um, outlandish examples, right, you know, what we're calling in the title science fiction thought experiments, uh, are sort of innately silly or vacuous or uninformative. Uh, and, and that always just, and, you know, as the conversation goes on, we'll, we can put in some caveats. I think there are cases in which they might have a point. But I think that uh, for the most part, right, that's, not, that's a criticism that's never made sense to me. Um, and, of course, as many people pointed out in the comments, uh, that, you know, there are versions of this call coming from inside the house, uh, that there, there are people who do, you know, you know what, whatever, to use that not super useful, but you know what I mean, designation, who do analytic philosophy, who, uh, uh, who will, you know, who have, uh, who have well thought out reasons for, for thinking that we actually don't really learn anything, um, important from, uh, from thinking about the sort of, uh, hypothetical science fiction scenarios. Uh, and, you know, you, you kind of piped up to, to say a little bit about some of the criticism that you, um, that you have, and in particular, one thing that really caught my interest is that, you know, you sort of identified as an area where you particularly don't like them, probably the single area where intuitively I'd find them most defensible, which <laughs> is uh, their use in, uh, in moral philosophy, because, you know, my, I mean, on the face of it, right, you know, I, my view would be, look, if the point of a you know, what a thought experiment is good for is helping you figure out what you actually think, uh, refining intuitions. And so if you're using that for like metaphysics, you're trying to figure out what's objectively true about reality, that it's, you know, that's not going to be productive because, you know, we don't have any special guarantee that, you know, what we intuitively think is going to line up, you know, with objective, uh, external reality. Uh, but, and I mean, there are tricky metaethics issues here about exactly how you think about what morality is, and depending on your answer to that, you know, you might be more or less, you know, friendly or unfriendly to this. But on the face of it, uh, if if you think that um, if you think morality is an area where what we're essentially trying to do is is you know just bring moral intuitions into reflective equilibrium with each other, that you know, you're trying to sort of work, you know, like figure out their entailments and, you know, and, and kind of make them consistent with each other, then that's a, that's an area where appeal to intuition would makes a lot of sense. And hence why sort of using thought experiments to like, kind of try to like figure out what we think when two intuitions seem to come into conflict with each other, etc. uh, seems useful to be on the, on the face, but, uh, but that's enough for me. So what, what's your take on all of this? Yeah, you know, I'm glad you, you said all that because I would be surprised if we couldn't find some kind of common ground here. Like, I, I don't think that we actually disagree, or I'd be surprised if we actually disagreed as much as it might seem at the end of it. So um, I would just make this division in moral philosophy where I would just say, you know, my, my issue with thought experiments lies pretty much entirely in the realm of applied ethics. So mm -hmm. applied ethics, you know, that's like uh, 
you know, what we should actually do when it comes to like abortion or, or gay marriage or, um, you know, even like political issues like Israel, Palestine or something. And then, you know, normative ethics is a little more abstract, like that's, you know, utilitarianism and deontology and virtue ethics is kind of like overarching theories of what's right and wrong. And even more abstract, we have meta ethics, um, you know, like does value exist or something like the ontology of morals. Um, so my issue with thought experiments is pretty much confined to applied ethics. Um, it's interesting that you said intuition, though, because I certainly don't have a problem with intuition, um, especially moral intuition. But I think that ethical thought experiments, they kind of, um, they play with our intuitions. They create these possible worlds that don't really map onto our world. And I think they just confuse more than they clarify. And I think the way they're used is actually quite pernicious sometimes. So, um, well, let's, I, let's, let's maybe think about examples because, um, okay. I mean, so like, here's a, here's a sort of classic, uh, um, you know, I mean, here's a, here's a classic outlandish thought experiment, uh, for applied ethics, you know, that, uh, most people who are, you know, probably most people who are listening to this, given the title of the topic, are already familiar with it. But, like, just uh, real quickly, um, you know, there's Judith Jarvis Thompson has the classic example about uh, somebody, you know, somebody who uh, is, you know, like conked over the head and they wake up at a hospital and, they, and they've been connected uh, to this famous uh, sick violinist by the Society of Music Lovers, which says that... They're, um, you know, whatever. I don't remember Thompson's exact medical details, and the I don't think the medical details are what's important here. But they have a, you know, due to your unique compatibility or whatever, you know, that they it had to be you, and uh, and if you disconnect yourself now, then uh, then this this famous sick violinist will die. And what it's supposed to do is to test our intuitive commitment to different moral principles. In this case, the idea that the right to life is so important that it even overrides your right to bodily autonomy. And that's always seemed pretty compelling to me. Should it not? I just don't think that thought experiments like that necessarily map onto the abortion case. So, mm. you know, when I first started, cause I've, I've sort of felt this way about applied ethical thought experiments for a long time. And I thought maybe I was just being kind of like anti-intellectual or like anti-philosophy or something. But then this guy came along, um, James Wilson, who's um, a philosopher. I mean, I guess he's an analytic, but he's he's a pragmatist. So maybe some gray area there. But, um, you know, and he wrote this paper about internal and external validity in ethical thought experiments. And I think that that would be helpful to mention here because he mentions internal validity, meaning the thought experiment might uh, you know, do what it's supposed to do. And, and we might agree on the thought experiment. Like we might agree about the violinist case, but that doesn't necessarily generalize to cases beyond that specific scenario. So, you know, there's this other famous thought experiment. Um, that's forget who came up with it. Um, <clears throat> it's supposed to illustrate that there's not really a difference between killing and letting die. So for that scenario, it seems pretty compelling to me. It's like, yeah, in that scenario, sure. It doesn't seem like there's a difference between killing and letting die. Do you remember what the exact... Uh, 
No, I think it has something to do with drowning in a bathtub. Oh, maybe. okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. The, uh, it's so, this is, I don't Actually, I don't know if this original her, but I think it's also Judith Jarvis Thompson paper. Uh, although maybe not, actually. I don't know. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter who where it's from. I I do know what you're talking about, though. So they. Um, well, the the point being that like you can accept that there's a difference between killing and letting die in that scenario, but that doesn't it doesn't follow that there's never a difference between killing and letting die. So it doesn't necessarily have external validity just because it has internal validity. So with the violinist case, you know. It's totally unclear to me that, you know, if we agree about the violinist case, then we're going to agree about abortion. Like, I think that you can answer differently on the violinist case and come down on different, you know, pro-choice or pro-life views. Yeah, so that, I mean, that last part is for sure right. Although, I, I guess I wonder how much, so I guess how much you think that undermines the point depends on how what you think the point is. So, you know, like... As I was unpacking it, as I would read it at least, the the point is to respond to a certain argument uh, for a pro-life position by by showing uh, that the that um, by showing that the the principle that's being appealed to you know isn't correct, right? That they that in other words that you know I like the, I think the argument that she was responding to is well a fetus is a, is a person and a person has a right to life. That's so important that it would trump, you know, whatever other rights, even the, even the right to, uh, to control your own body. And so if this is, you know, this is an example in which that, you know, that principle would fail, right? I mean, that does seem like a, that does seem like an important point, right? Like, like I don't, and and I think the point about the principle could be true. Like, in other words, I don't think that this has to be particularly analogous to abortion for it to for it to show that this sort of that premise in an anti-abortion argument is is wrong. You know, and if and, you know, maybe there's like a way of like saving that sort of anti-abortion argument where you say, OK, uh, back to the drawing board. It's not really that the right to life you know it's not that the right to life is universally more important than the right to bodily autonomy fair enough judith but um it's it's a it's more important in generally or it's more important in certain kinds of cases that this this is not an example of and that abortion would be an example of and and if any of that is right right that it seems like the the thought experiment has usefully advanced the argument you know, I, I think you're right that it sort of depends on what you think the point is exactly. I mean, the, I mean, there might be some narrow goal in, in some dialectical context, but I think the point of something like the violinist is to inform how we should think about abortion at the end of the day. Like, should it be permissible or, or not? And it's like, um, so if you if you narrow the uh, the goals, then yeah, it, it can be used to show that okay, this isn't necessarily the case. But I think with the violinist, what might be going on is that there are multiple interacting principles. Um, and that, you know, there are sort of subtleties in this case that determine your answer. Like if you give this case to doctors, according to James Wilson, who's, you know, presented this to people who have performed abortions and people who are nurses and doctors, and, and a lot of them are just confused by this thought experiment. 
Okay, um, but I mean, really that's not like surprising, it. right? Like, well, I, it, it is, and it, I mean, this is part of what I mean. What I, I, what, I would just think that that proves that they're not philosophers since they're not used to thinking it that way. So I would think but most I think, people. I think that that tells something really important, though the fact that okay. the people who are in the trenches, the people who have the most expertise about abortion, they don't find this case useful. I mean, that's kind of what I'm trying to get at is people who actually have expertise in these topics, like they tend to not find these thought experiments very useful. And I don't think philosophers are really in a position to say, oh, well, I actually know more about this than you do, even though you're really in the trenches and I'm, and I'm not. Okay. The distinction I would make is that they're in the trenches in terms of, I mean, the actual application of the issue. And they certainly know more about the factual, like any sort of factual premises that you'd appeal to in an argument for or against abortion, they, they know more about. Fair enough, right? But I mean, like, to me, this is a little bit like hearing some neuroscientists tell you that, like, there's definitely not free will and he'll only appeal to factual premises and he doesn't, he doesn't know, you know, he doesn't know or understand any of the distinction that philosophers would make when arguing about, you know, what would count as free will or anything like that. And that all just sort of sounds boring and tedious and confusing to him. I mean, I would just say that like just having a particular kind of technical or scientific expertise doesn't make you very good at parsing arguments. Yeah, no, and believe me, we're on the same page about that. But I think that this is a unique area of philosophy, though. This is, you know, applied ethics. And that's why my issue with thought experiments is sort of constrained to the area of applied ethics, where it's like, what are we supposed to actually do? So hang on, let me, um, if I could, let me like take a step back to try to give sure. like a more general um you know, what my problem is exactly. So I think that ethical thought experiments, they sort of provide too much information and too little information at the same time. And it kind of puts us in this uncanny valley. Um, so they give us a lot of ethical thought experiments. They give us information that we wouldn't actually have in the real world. So, you know, you can see this in like the trolley problem and in, in many others. Um, and in another way, they remove all this context and history and kind of provide this like idealized, sanitized case where it's like, you know, this whole scenario exists in this uncanny valley of too much and too little information. We have information that we wouldn't really have in real life, and we, ha and we don't have information that we would have in real life. So for me, this kind of undermines their value in applied ethical philosophy because we're trying to figure out what we should do. <laughs> and if you like imagine a world <clears throat> that's completely different from this world, or at least different in ethically relevant respects, then it kind of undermines the, the value. Again, like this is applied ethics. This is kind of a unique area of philosophy. So um, if you erase all this context and this history and pre present this like idealized scenario, that's fine in all kinds of areas of philosophy. It's fine in science, but in applied ethics, um, I don't really see it. So just to give like one example of how I see this used in a way that really annoys me. Um, and it's also relevant to the abortion case that was just brought up. Um, so like Sam Harris will sometimes talk about torture or Israel and Palestine, and he'll present these like thought experiments that are like, uh, you know, these hyper idealized, sanitized, like, you know, he presents him, a lot of people, a lot of his fans see him as basically like Spock. And he's just like going through this like rational argumentation. And then after he goes through this thought experiment, then he goes, yeah, and that's just like Israel-Palestine, and that's why you should agree with me about Israel, which, you know, drives me insane. He does the same thing with, like, arguing for torture. And um, th that's sort of the uh, 
the perniciousness of of ethical uh, you know ethical thought experiments because they're doing what hap- what uh, we were just talking about in that abortion case. They're like presenting this uh, thought experiment, and then when you present it to people who actually have expertise in the field, like the doctors and nurses, or people who have lots and lots of uh, information and knowledge about Israel and Palestine, they get very frustrated with people like Sam Harris, who, you know, and it's for good reason, you know, and you can say, oh, well, you know, these people, they just, they don't understand philosophy. And it's like, no, it's their expertise of this topic that is, that makes it so frustrating to them and why they can't stand these ethical thought experiments. Okay. So, so I, I would distinguish between two issues, right? So the reaction to the experts, which I'm actually pretty willing to arrogantly dismiss for uh, reasons already argued for. Uh, I, don't, I just don't care at all about that. But then, uh, then the other one is the sort of way that somebody like Sam Harris is using it, which I agree is silly. But that's also because, you know, I mean, Sam Harris is indeed somebody who's you know, who knows a lot about certain empirical subjects, you know, is a neuroscientist, but I don't think knows very much about how arguments work and is a, and doesn't do this, like, doesn't do this the way he should, right? So what a thought experiment, you know, I mean, okay, look, maybe you're right and, and, and they're actually bad at applied ethics, but if they, if a thought experiment in applied ethics has any value, uh, it's in doing things like, testing whether some moral principle is correct right like well this principle sounds good but taken seriously then that would lead you to endorsing this obviously abhorrent um consequence in this scenario um but that's not really the way that harris uses them right like what he's really doing are sort of uh ham-handed arguments by analogy uh and so in the you know, and it, and tellingly, right? Like he can't even quite keep track within these arguments about whether he's um, about whether the uh, uh, whether he's describing he's staying within some hypothetical world and that he's concluded something from it, which we can then like say, here's the principle you're getting out of it, and you know you can apply this to the real world, or whether he's just like sort of announcing straightforward things about the real world right so like at the end of fa- at the end of the end of faith there's this notorious so-called nuclear thought experiment um where he concludes like so you know as unpleasant as repugnant as i find the possibility right this is something we might actually have to do and it's like well hold on right where <laughs> how are you getting from point a to point b right like in other words uh maybe to put what i've been saying a little a little bit more clearly see if this tracks to you I would say, I mean, I agree with you that Sam Harris's use of thought experiments is not um, is not compelling. I don't know if that was a tactical choice on your part or not. Uh, if so, it's a good one because I famously despise Sam Harris. But um, but so I agree with you that that's not compelling. But I don't. I think there's a I think there's a big difference between the way that somebody like Sam Harris is using a thought experiment and the way that somebody like Judith Jarvis Thompson is uh is using a thought experiment that like if you're just describing a hypothetical thing that you think might actually happen and you're just sort of describing it in simplistic terms and then say no so i guess we might actually have to do that right you know we might you know i'd like again he'll he'll switch wildly back and forth between if and and is right you know he'll say we might actually have to use torture in our current war on terror that's a quote 
Um, so in that, you know, in that case, then you're right. I completely agree with your criticism because he's, because of course the real, you know, like if he's using this, this sort of simplified stylized version of the case as and appealing to an intuition about that and then just straightforwardly applying it in the real case and saying like, well, if you agree that we should, you know, whatever nuke, a uh, hypothetical fundamentalist country, then you should agree that we should maybe nuke Iran. You know, if you agree that uh, that torture would be justified in this ludicrous uh, ticking time bomb case, then you then you should agree that torture, you know, might sometimes actually be justified in our current war on terror. And he's ignoring all the disanalogies between those cases and the real cases, and I think that's a great criticism. I completely agree with you, but I guess the reason I maybe do see more of a role for uh, thought experiments and applied ethics is because if you're not using them the way that Sam Harris is, just sort of using stylized cases as one-to-one analogies with real cases and then concluding what you think should happen in the stylized case and then directly carrying it over to what you think should happen in the real case, but instead if you're using them to test principles, then I actually think there's it's not necessarily a, a problem, right? So like go back to the, you know, what I think one of your Uncanny Valley cases, you know, you're talking about the trolley problem. Um, and, and I'm glad you brought that up, right? Because I think a lot of the people that I'm kind of reacting to, um, like some people from Continental Philosophy's short backgrounds or like, um, you know, I will throw my friend Nathan Robinson under the bus here and say the article that he wrote about the trolley problem for current affairs a long time ago. Like, sort of look at this and be like, okay, you're sort of asking me to contemplate grisly things, but, I, but, uh, what's the value of this? And they don't, and they seem to talk about ways that don't quite get what the value is. But I mean, if the ultimate point, like in something like the trolley case is a anti-utilitarian point that, uh, you know, you would not be justified, you know, that, um, that, you know, what the footbridge version of the trolley problem case is that, you know, shows, is that um, is that it? Even if the consequences of pushing the guy onto the track are five times as good as the consequences of not pushing the guy onto the track, it's still not morally okay to do it. That that seems to me, and I'll throw to you on this: that you could actually learn something important about that for the actual case. Even though you're right, I mean, I totally get what you mean by saying that there is a unrealistic level of information, you know, that in some ways you have less than you normally have, in some ways you have more than you normally have, that, that all, I, I think that's all well taken. But like, if what you get out of that is a sort of general anti-utilitarian conclusion that like, you know, you, that you don't agree with the principle, then that could actually be really useful information for morally navigating the real world, you know, because, you know, whatever, if, uh, if you're thinking about, you know, President Truman wanting to drop the atomic bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and maybe you're not sure if the claims that being made about how many lives this would save are, tr- are true or not. Uh, but if you've if you've been convinced by consideration of these cases that you know that the utilitarian principle is just wrong, right? That it's not morally acceptable to sacrifice people's lives. In this then that then that gives you something incredibly useful, which is hey, even if uh, Truman and his advisors are right about this, it still wouldn't be justified, which, you know, can, can be really helpful if you're actually not sure whether they're right or wrong. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like we are in, in, I mean, we're in a lot of, uh, we're in pretty, <laughs> uh, I'm trying to identify something that we actually disagree about. Cause it sounds like 
we're on the same page about a, a lot of what I just said. Like, um, I think that a lot of these ethical thought experiments, because again, I, I'm only concerned with applied ethical philosophy here. And it's like, to the extent that these thought experiments are invoked to inform action, like that's where I really don't like them. Um, because as you said, they're often just ham-fisted, ham-fisted analogies for real situations. And that's why they're worse than useless. And they confuse more than they clarify because they are bad. And now that's essentially what ethical thought experiments are. They're okay, that's the, analogies. That's the claim we disagree about. Um, so, 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 so in other words, like, I, I, I think what we, I think there are a lot of principles we're agreed on here. I think that, I think that where we're disagreeing probably is about whether sort of canonical examples of, um, whether applied ethics or, you know, like of, uh, of sort of canonical examples of like academic applied ethics kind of thought experiments are best understood as, as ham-fisted analogies for real cases. And, and I, I think that's, I think that's the, I think that's the claim I'd I'd probably resist the most, right? Like I've already suggested, for example, that I, I don't, you know, that I wouldn't think about the, uh, the, you know, sick violinist or the trolley problem that way. Okay. Yeah. Okay. We do disagree about that because I very much see the violinist as a not very great analogy for abortion and the trolley problem for any number of things. Um, but you know, if the point is to illustrate principles, like you were saying earlier, then that's sort of starting to get into the realm of more normative ethics where I don't have as much of a problem with ethical uh, thought experiments. If you're just trying to illustrate some kind of general principle, then, then fine. But as soon as you're trying to, you know, and I, I don't know why I brought up Sam Harris. That's just the example that came to mind. But, um, you know, like he'll create, like I said, this um, ethical thought experiment about, hey, wouldn't torture seem justified in this case? Well, then you've got to reject your, you know, across the board anti-torture principles here. And, you know, oh, and lo and behold, you know, this justifies some policy you know, smash cut to a Guantanamo Bay and Abu Ghraib and stuff. And that's why I don't like these ethical thought experiments. It creates these, um, you know, alternate realities, basically, where it kind of might seem justified to take a particular action. And then they reveal, oh, hey, this is about the real world, and this should inform our actions in this particular way. And that's why that's when I'm like, hey, let's just talk about real world ethics. Like, you can't get rid of the context and history and all the ethically relevant details you know, it's very messy and like, yeah, the real world can be, uh, you know, irritatingly complex, but it, you're not helping anyone by creating an idealized case that ultimately just, uh, you know, is not a very good way of informing our actions. Okay. So I do notice that what you said earlier is illustrate principles and the word I would use is test principles, right? That like, I, I think that like I take the the experiment part of the analogy somewhat seriously and say that what thought experiments are good for is um, is sort of seeing like okay here's a principle that sounds plausible to you know like okay so like you're using you're making an argument against abortion for example and you're appealing to some moral principle that that sounds right but would you actually you know like uh, but but is it? What about this case? Right, like that um, sort of you know roughly like you know so like the other way the other context besides ethics um, 
I mean, people use thought experiments in lots of contexts, and and in some of them, I actually don't know that I think that they are particularly useful or legitimate because just they're just areas where I'm not sure how far appeal to intuition can really take you. Um, you know, because we're you know, if you're trying to figure out like what consciousness actually is or something like that, you know, like I, I'm not sure why um, sort of deep exploration of what our initial intuitive ideas about that are is going to be useful, but. In, um, uh, but in ethical cases, you know, so, but what, sorry, what I was going to say is one case where I've, you know, I, I find them useful is the ethical cases. And the other case is the, that I think is structurally analogous is, um, I guess the semantic case when you're, you're, uh, you're trying to like do conceptual analysis. And so, you know, you say like, Okay, here's a nice classic science fiction thought experiment. Uh, um, you know, somebody says, "Well, you know, something doesn't count as uh, as free will if you if you uh, can't do otherwise." And Harry Frankfurt comes along and says, "Okay, but wait a second. What about this bizarre situation in which uh, in which you can't do otherwise, but it sure seems like you know the person's in control, the right way to be morally responsible for it," and that feels legitimate to me too for the same reason, which is that, you know, what you're doing is you're sort of testing what it, you know, you're sort of figuring out by thinking about a weird example, what it is that you actually think in that case, you know, in that case you're testing what, you know, what do you actually mean when you use phrases like free will or moral responsibility or whatever, that's the conceptual analysis one. And then they, um, in the ethics case, I think it's just like, okay, you've got some, you know, you've got some moral premise and you're going to test like, you know, such and such is always wrong. Well, what about this? Right. And, uh, is, you know, what this would fall under such and such, but, you know, do you really think that it's wrong? And, um, and, and that does seem like a useful way to me to, uh, you know, to try to figure out like which, you know, which ethical, um, you know, like which ethical principles you you really believe, right? Which could be as broad as like, do I really think utilitarianism is true as a global moral theory, or it could be as narrow as, um, do I really think that if if some entity is a person, that therefore its right to life, you know, overrides the right to bodily autonomy? Yeah. So um, testing principles. So I think that if you define what your project is narrowly enough then yeah ethical thought experiments are great for that so like if you're trying to figure out hey is there a difference between killing and letting die or if you're trying to say is there never a difference between killing and letting die or is there always a difference then yeah like a thought experiment that you dream of can show that you know it can bring you to some kind of conclusion about you know that narrowly defined project like is it you know never the case that there's a difference between killing and letting die or is it always the case or something like that but you know that kind again i've got no problem with testing principles in that way i've got no problem with ethical intuitions um weirdly i think i'm more sympathetic to thought experiments in some of the areas where you're not sympathetic to them like okay. I think yeah. thought experiments and intuition actually have played a big role in scientific progress like galileo undermined aristotelian mm. physics by appealing to a thought experiment with a cannonball and a musket ball and Einstein appealed to intuition explicitly and used all these thought experiments to advance physics you know so I, I think that there's kind of um, 
I don't know. I think a lot of people I see, they're kind of too quick to reject like what they would call like armchair, a priori, you know, intuitive kind of reasoning. And it's like, I'm, there's definitely a place for that. And it has historically played a role in the advancement of science. Um, and I'm all fine with, you know, I'm sympathetic to like Michael Humer's um, account of ethical intuitionism. Mm -hmm. By the way, that was a, that was a funny debate that you had with him about libertarianism. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, again, it's, it's strictly in the realm of applied ethics where people are trying to say, you know, here's a thought experiment, therefore we should behave this way in the real world. So like killing and letting die is a good case again. It's like if you can, you can come up with a thought experiment that shows that in some cases there's no difference between killing and letting die. So again, if you're narrowly defining your project is like, hey, I want to show that, um, you know, this is like not necessarily the case or whatever. Okay, that's great. But does, I mean, once you go through that thought experiment, does it illustrate that, um, there is no difference between killing and letting die ever. No, that doesn't follow from that thought experiment at all. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I guess that seems like a problem not so much with with thought experiments as a sort of tool for um, uh, for for thinking about ethics or even applied ethics as as much as just it's a problem with people making weird logical leaps. From, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. But that's what I worry about. There was someone being like, well, as was demonstrated in this paper, there is no difference between killing and letting die. Therefore, we should have this policy. Like, I see that all the time, like in the real world. Like, I just don't think that you can separate out. Um, you can't just appeal to the professional philosophers and say, well, look, they're doing a good job. And then ignore the people like Sam Harris or his listeners or whoever who, like, you know, clearly create these ethical thought experiments to justify a bad policy towards, you know, Israel, Palestine or torture or what have you, because that is how ethical thought experiments are actually used. Like that is how they're appealed to. And that's why I'm, why I don't like them. Yeah. My problem with that argument is that I think it proves too much. I think that cause they're saying, okay, like sure. Sam Harris makes bad moral political arguments, you know, using sometimes thought experiments, but he also just makes bad moral and political arguments, even when he's not appealing to thought experiments. So like, I don't know why, I don't know what it is about that case that like particularly goes against, you know, thought experiments as a, you know, moral thought experiments as a device, right? Like why not just say like, um, yeah, I mean, bad arguments are bad, whether those bad arguments take the form of thought, exp you know, like, whether those bad arguments involve thought experiments at key points or, or not. Right. And so sure. I mean, like Harris is, uh, you know, Harris is using, um, like, you know, Harris will, will appeal to thought experiments and then sort of mangle the rest of the argument. Right. Cause he hasn't actually, you know, like maybe he's like, maybe his point is just a crude argument for analogy and he never stops to consider the possible disanalogies or, you know, or, or whatever. Right. Like, but, um, but that just, that just seems like, um, I mean, I, I guess like, this is kind of a route that, um, I actually don't think they should, I don't think this move should be open to you saying like, well, you know, Sam Harris uses thought experiments badly. Sure. It's like, well, he's just, yeah, no, no doubt about that. But, like, I think that it's but, about but he, to go but he badly. Uses, he uses it's, every it's, every kind of argument badly. 
Like, well, then we, we don't have to talk about Sam Harris, but I'm saying like it's the I think the problem in part is the tool. Like the tool is kind of flawed because we're creating this uh, kind of, uh, you know, this story about an alternate world that ha- that provides us too much and too little information. OK, but but is that why is that's what's is that what's wrong? Like, I mean, I think that that's I think that that limitation of the tool might be relevant to diagnosing what's wrong with bad uses of the tool but i guess it's i guess it does seem to me like say that therefore we shouldn't use the tool carefully uh does you know even in moral context you know doesn't really doesn't really make sense to me i I think we have like a ton of good examples of use of that tool and you know i i don't see the difference like you know you, you brought up michael huber like if somebody takes a real world case like uh muggins really exist and we all think they're bad uh therefore uh taxation is bad you know because because of what the taxes and the mugging you know have in common which is that there's a um that there's a transfer of resources uh backed up by threat of force like i think that's a bad argument but like that is there's no hypothetical there right we're just looking at two real cases and we're not attending enough to the differences between them and i don't really see a difference between that and taking a real case and a hypothetical case and not sufficiently um, and not sufficiently attended to the differences between them. But I'll also point out, I mean, look, uh, I, I mean, I think that, I mean, I know you're making a distinction between applied ethics and like theoretical normative ethics, although I'm not totally sure why, but I think that the, you know, but like certainly a case of a moral thought experiment, uh, that you know that seems like pretty good to me is like any any normal presentation for example of like a euthyphro objection to divine command ethics uh where you say okay i'm going to accept for the sake of argument that you the theist are right about how the universe works that there's this morally perfect god you know who issues command you know like who you know that god issues commands of the kind that you think he does and no other uh, but hypothetically, what about, uh, what about a world where, you know, where, uh, God is, is issuing commands to, you know, has commanded you to, you know, rape and murder and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, what about that? Right. Would you accept that those things were morally good in that world? And certainly, you know, from a standard theistic perspective, science fiction doesn't get much more outlandish than imagining a version of God who's evil. Yeah. And, you know, I've got no issue with um, thought experiments in the realm of meta-ethics, as in the case of Euthyphro, or, yeah, I, I said I don't have a problem with them in physics, which just sounds like I might be more pro-thought experiment in, like, most other areas than you, but um, when it comes to stuff yeah. that's, like, practical, I guess, like, okay, what should we do next? Like, what policy should we implement? That's when I start getting a little, like, squirrely about thought experiments, because they do, it seems like, by definition, they're all ham-fisted analogies. Like they are just okay. kind of like crude analogies for what's really going on. Okay, that's and that's where we really disagree because I don't think that's true by definition. I don't even think that's true of the of most of the canonical cases. Oh wait, there's like, also one other area where we definitely disagree, though, which is sure. the frequency of bad thought experiments. So I think the vast majority of them are bad. Like you gave the humor case of like, hey, um, you know, someone mugs you, but it's for a good cause. That's what taxation is like. It's like, yeah, that's a bad thought experiment. 
But what I'm saying is like, that's just par for the course. Man. Like the, every time I hear a thought experiment invoke, it's very rare that they actually are good analogies because for the reasons that I've, that I've laid out, like they give you information that you don't have and they take away information that you would have. They're ultimately just kind of bad stories that don't really map on to the real world case. And I think some of that just stems from an unwillingness to talk about the real world case because it's messier. It's easier just to have an idealized case where it, you get rid of all that irritating context and history and complexity. Yeah, so th this is where I really, this is where I think I really most disagree, right? So I think that, um, you know, I mean, in the Huber case I was given, I was given a Huber-style argument that doesn't involve a thought experiment that just involves a bad analogy between two things that really exist. Um, but yeah, once you do the, the Huber's one, the, the you know, the, the mugger who, who actually, um, unlike real muggers, right, you know, is like mugging you for charity or something, then that, then we are in hypothetical thought experiment territory. Although I actually don't think that that's like a worthless thing to, to bring up. I actually think that's like a useful thing to like sort of force people on my side to, to think about the disanalogies. But, um, but yeah, I don't think that most moral thought experiments, and I don't really get the significance of making a distinction between metaethics, meta normative ethics, and applied ethics here, because I think in all cases, like the sort of euthyphro example I gave before, what does that do? It's testing a moral intuition, right? The, uh, uh, that would you, you know, would you actually think that these things were morally right in that hypothetical, uh, which doesn't seem obviously different to me from saying that, um, you know, if you say that the reason why uh, aborted and non-sentient, you know, two-week-old fetus is is morally wrong is that the special feature of humans that makes it wrong to kill us is that we're human. And, um, you know, and, and you say, like, you know, Don Marquis does at the end of the paper where he is even ultimately arguing for any anti-abortion position. But, you know, to his credit, he's not uh, he doesn't accept that. Uh, and he says, well, okay, but why not just, you know, but, you know, what if they, you know, what if there were, you know, what if like the Vulcans in Star Trek really existed, you know, would it be okay to kill them willy nilly if so, or would that, you know, uh, if so, then the, the special thing, you know, that the thing that makes it wrong to kill us can't be our species membership. I mean, that one's like an applied ethics example. The Euthyphro example is meta ethics, but in all cases, it seems like what we're really, you know, trolley problem is, is, a uh, is in the middle. That's a normative ethics case. Cause that's generally, you know, that's generally brought up, not in particular arguments about particular policies, uh, but, uh, uh, but in order right. to argue about like whether utilitarianism is the right general theory of morality. And, and in all three cases, it seems like what it's doing is the same thing. It's, uh, it's, it's testing moral intuitions. And I don't actually think, I mean, when you say most, I mean, you might be right, right? Because, like, if, we, if we're not just talking about academic philosophy, if we're talking about, like, you know, everybody currently alive who's ever appealed to, you know, a uh, science fiction thought experiment, so there, will be, there are, like, 30 times as many people on Reddit as, as, as uh, <laughs> yeah, in, philosophy, exactly. in philosophy journals, then, you know, fair enough. You're probably right that most uses of it are bad. But I guess the thing that I push on there is like, okay, but by the same argument, by the same token, right? I mean, most moral arguments that anybody makes, whether they use thought experiments or not, are are going to be are going to be pretty bad, right? That it's like making good moral arguments is really hard, and you have to you have to think really carefully about it. 
And and so yeah, most people aren't going to be good at it. But I guess I do. I do also just really want to deny this claim that sort of most of at least if at least if the domain is restricted to like sort of academic ethicists, uh, I guess I do want to deny the claim that uh, certainly that definitionally they're ham-fisted analogies or. Um, or even I think that most of them are ham-fisted analogies, uh, or that like the primary motivation is not wanting to engage with the complexities of um, of real cases. I mean, I think I think oftentimes it's it's precisely, you know, to think, you know, to you know say, okay, I'm trying to figure out, you know, whether abortion is wrong, for example, and so I I'm trying to figure out like what's the kind of thing you know what where does the wrongness of killing like a adult human being come from right is it is it their species membership is it the fact that they're you know they could reason right you know is is it is it something else and uh, and and it seems like if you're only considering the case that you're ultimately trying to decide you're only you're only considering uh, the abortion case uh, then you haven't um, you know, then you're just, there's just going to be no way to sort of settle, settle that, right? You know, without like, you know, without like thinking about some other cases that are different in important ways. And maybe reality will be cooperative enough to give you cases that are similar in some ways and different in others, you know, so you can, you know, compare your intuitions about those. But I mean, if it's, if it's not, right, then sort of turning to hypothetical cases does make sense to me. Yeah, I mean, it, because it, it clarifies, because you get rid of a lot of information that makes it more complicated. But, I mean, I guess I just want to, like, defend the idea that applied ethics is, like, truly unique, you know? So, like, I, like I've been saying, I don't have a problem with thought experiments in many of those areas that you just mentioned. But when it comes to applied ethics, I think that this is, like, a truly unique area in philosophy. Like, I, I sort of want to drag you out of um, philosophy land a little bit and, like you know, just try to, like, appreciate that, like, everyone does this. This is, you know, not, uh, this is rarely the case with, like, subjects in philosophy, you know, like, um, where it's like, hey, pretty much everyone is engaging in applied ethics. It's just part of, like, being a human being. And um, there, and people, uh, you know, so this particular tool, when it's used to inform action, you know, like, so this is not just about like what exists, you know, like with meta ethics, it's like, this is about what we should do next. Mm-hmm. And I just don't think that if we're talking about what should we do next, I don't think we should be informing that choice with idealized contextless stories that um, don't really map onto the situation. Like, I just think that's, that's bound to go wrong in more cases than not. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to think about, what else there is that's productive to say about this. But I think that like, cause, cause you're, you're speaking at a pretty high level of generality, you know, that you're like, well, you don't want thought experiments to be used to, to inform judgments about what to do. And I guess the point I would push on is that they could be used in different ways to ultimately inform what we should do. And that those differences are probably going to be important, right? That they, that, um, so, so the way. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I don't mean to interrupt. Sure, no, no, no. go for it. Go for it. I, I don't mean to sound so absolutist about it. Like I think that, um, like, thought, ethical thought experiments, even in the realm of applied ethical philosophy, it's not like there's no good examples. Okay, but I'm just saying that like you're sort of set up to fail 
where it's like it's so easy for it to go wrong like it's so easy for, like it, it just seems you have to be like very expert to uh to navigate it in a way that it doesn't go wrong um so just to like put my cards on the table i think that like peter singer's pond thought experiment is great because it seems to inspire people to behave better like it he, i think he's actually like saved lives and gotten people to contribute lots of money to you know like effective altruism like as a result of that thought experiment like he's actually been like effective in making the world a better place by giving by telling that little story which is which is yeah. which is which is ironic because um you know, I remember it occurred to me years ago that uh, now that all the utilitarian cool kids are effective alt- altruism people, uh, we could just construct a new version of it uh, where <laughs> where they would endorse uh, they would endorse uh, something horrific. You know, which is that imagine that the uh, the guy's motivation for walking past the pond and not wanting to ruin his nice suit isn't selfish, like in Peter Singer's original example, uh, but that it's uh, that he's a, he's an effective altruism guy, and he thinks that if he loses this job. You know, he won't have as much money to give to family relief <laughs> charities, so he just keeps walking. Uh, but, oh, that's great. But, um, but yeah, I, I guess, so, so I, okay, so I don't think there's, I, I don't, I don't think I think they're set up to fail. I think that, I think that there's, I guess I want to distinguish between two broad categories of uses. Uh, one of them is sort of, use of a thought experiment to to test some moral principle that's been used in an argument about a real case so uh you know you're sort of trying to break down like okay why do i think you know like if you think that you know like if somebody just sort of makes the usual standard argument against abortion out that people will make out in the wild outside of philosophy class, which is a terrible argument, it doesn't involve any thought experiments, but it goes to the point that most moral arguments that most people make most of the time are really bad, uh, which is is just well, if you know, a fetus is is you know a person or the way people would even put it because they're not being that careful is it's life, therefore abortion is wrong. Uh, that if you really start to push them on that, it's like okay, but why does it mean that? And, you know, you have a sufficiently thoughtful pro-life interlocutor that they're like, they're willing to spell it out for you and, and really think about it. Then it seems like they probably are going to come up with something like, um, you know, the right to life is, uh, is more important than, than bodily autonomy. At which point, at which point, like, I think, you know, in evaluating that argument. I think that consideration of whether you'd apply that principle in other cases is really important. And it doesn't even mean that it's like a game over, that there's just no way to argue against abortion after that. But I think, I think you have usefully advanced the argument if you show no, that clearly, you know, it, it clearly is at least not always more important, you know, like, like uh, the right to life is at least clearly not always more important than bodily autonomy. And then maybe you can go back to the drawing board and say, but, you know, there's a, there are certain cases in which it is, or, you know, here's the relevant difference or something like that. And like, now I feel like we've actually gotten somewhere. I guess where I'm more sympathetic to your perspective is when somebody is introducing something like this, not to sort of, you know, test a principle that's going to be used at some point in an argument, but to, as like a sort of direct one-on-one you know, one-to-one analogy, uh, which I actually don't think most sort of canonical examples are like that. But if, yeah, but if somebody's doing like that, you're right. I think it's much easier to fail because 
most arguments from analogy are really bad, right? Because most people aren't good at like sort of carefully sifting through what the actual similarities, relevant dissimilarities are uh, between cases. So, so yeah, I mean, they'll, they'll probably come up with some terrible analogies and I don't know. I mean, maybe, uh, I mean, I guess maybe, I mean, to the extent that your point is that like people who are already inclined to make terrible analogies uh, are going to, you know, well, yeah. I, I mean, I think like in practice, you and I are going to like identify the same things and be like, that's a bad argument. That's a bad thought experiment. It's just, I'm going to have this underlying reason. Like, yeah, that was, you know, it's what you should expect to happen. And then I think that you're going to be more inclined to say like, well, they're just using them wrong. But I have like, on the other hand, this like underlying set of reasons why I think, yeah, you can pretty much expect them to go wrong. Yeah. I think that's mostly right. I think that the, I think that the difference is maybe that a, I think that we could identify like some broad parameters within which I think it's much easier for them, you know, that in which they're more likely to be successful and, and some broad parameters that aren't just a thought experiment is being used for where they're likely to be unsuccessful. And I think there are some actual canonical cases that I think we probably just read differently, but, um, Let's get uh, let's get let's get Kusha in. Um, so, Kusha, what is on your mind today? Good afternoon, Ben. It's it's really nice to be speaking with you again, and to be speaking with Emerson for the first time. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, awesome. So, I think that you raised a very interesting point while you were speaking, and it was essentially that like most moral arguments are going to be bad. I'm not going to challenge the veracity of that statement. But I think one thing that it raised for me, which is one of the most, it's a question I know Cornell West wrestled with, wrestles with actively about democracy and the moral arguments for and against democracy. And what my mind immediately went to when you said that is the position of one of the greatest minds who ever lived, uh, Plato. And I'm really curious what your thoughts are when it comes to his criticism of democracy and his argument for an alternative. Uh, I believe it's in the Republic that he raises essentially a form of government which he finds to be the best, which is like an aristocracy of the wisest men, or like these unwilling like philosopher kings. Uh, I think it's called like Calopolis. Calopolis. And so I'm really curious to know what your thoughts are about like this argument that Plato makes when it comes to the morality of a democracy, its shortcomings and its failures. Because if I'm not mistaken, Plato... Um, is not the only one from, um, you know, roughly that period of time to think that way. Uh, Plato being a Greek thinker, like 400 to like mid 300 BC. And then, you know, someone who came, you know, I guess towards the end of Plato's life and the years thereafter was Mencius, a Chinese philosopher, Confucian. And I was really curious when I, when I was fascinated when I was reading a little bit. Are you familiar with the historian Will Durant? Uh, yeah, not, not a deep. Yeah. Okay. So I was reading his book that one of my dad gave me one of his books, our Oriental heritage. And I was reading this section about Mencius and Will Durant talks about how quote, like Voltaire, Mencius preferred monarchy to democracy on the ground that in democracy, it is necessary to educate all if the government is to succeed. Well, under monarchy, it is only required that the philosopher should bring one man, the king, to wisdom in order to produce the perfect state. 
And then he quotes, uh, end quote, and then he quotes like what Mencius said, which is, correct what is wrong in the prince's mind. Once rectify the prince and the kingdom will be settled. I'd really love to know your thoughts on that, Ben, about the argument that's made by Plato, the argument that's made by Mencius, the moral argument for democracy against democracy, for an aristocracy of the wisest, and essentially how James, uh, the founding uh, slave owners of the United States, John Jay and James Madison, essentially entertained this notion of the failures of democracy that you know were wrestled with by Plato and so on to create like an electoral college and restricting it to like white men who were you know, plantation uh, who were very property and so on and so forth. I'd really love to hear your thoughts on that, Ben, when it comes to player's position and Mencius's position and so on and so forth. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm pretty unsympathetic to all of it. The uh, kind of modern update maybe is Jason, uh, Jason Brennan's uh, epistocracy uh, proposal, um, which, um, you know, which which is you know that, that you should have like panels of experts, you know, uh, maybe be in a position to uh, uh, to overrule uh, overrule popular decisions. Um, so you know, like you know, Brennan's a libertarian. He gives the example of rent control laws as something that you know, like economists should be able to like strike down, like the Supreme Court or the Islamic Guardianship Council, maybe striking down laws. Uh, yeah, and I, I don't I don't particularly like any of it i mean i'm trying not to be too flippant about it but i mean i do think like um even though even though i do think philosophical training does do some important things for you and helping you make more careful moral arguments um i i don't i don't actually for a variety of reasons i'm I'm not convinced that uh that rule by philosophers would would be uh would be a good idea um i would give a an you know, I, I think oftentimes people, even who are very rational within their sort of particular little area, um, are not super rational uh, or or any more rational than anybody else. You know, would would address in broader a broader scheme of issues. That's one issue. I'm also pretty friendly to the idea. I mean, this is actually, in my experience, pretty unpopular among people who do moral and political philosophy. But I'm actually also pretty friendly to the idea that. Uh, democracy is good uh not just sort of pragmatically because it's going to lead to good results but also in principle that there's there's something that's that's morally uh that's morally preferable about um that's morally preferable about having um like a quality of of power that you know that there's some sort of like innate right to self-government so anyway i don't don't know i uh before we go on to the next caller emerson do you have any thoughts about that one um, I support like the opposite system of government. I think only philosophers should not be allowed to <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sympathetic to that, honestly. <laughs> um, the the big thing that you know, big thing that brings me around on that is the 2020 election when like half the people I knew who um, who did um, uh, who did you know like academic philosophy for a living, you know, were enthusiastic not about Bernie Sanders but about uh, Elizabeth Warren who is uh, such a uh, is such a charismatic candidate that she came in like third or fourth in her home state and like it seemed like the thing that really impressed them about her 
was that she used all the sort of technocratic language to pander to people like academics and journalists. Yeah. Like, she had, like she had plans and then like you actually looked into the details, like literally you're just calling a five page medium post to plan, right? This is no different than what's on yeah, anybody else's website. Someone needs to like do a study of what the hell was going on. Why did academics love Elizabeth Warren so much? But yeah, I think it really comes down to like they vibed with her because she's the best at doing homework. And like, you know, Bernie is clearly not that. Yeah, no, exactly. All right. Uh, Scott, what's on your mind? Hey, guys. It's been a very interesting conversation for the parts I can follow. A lot of the high-level stuff is whizzing past me. But uh, So given the title of the episode was, was about science fiction thought experiments, my, my question is related to uh, Stephen Hawking and how he had a kind of because it's in the news because scientists are now broadcasting the location of Earth or or something to that effect. And so I thought that uh, his warning about, um, you know, the danger of it being that we broadcast our location to a advanced uh, alien race that will come and destroy us, Um, you know, that Vulcans were were mentioned earlier and, and we could get the Vulcans or we could get the Romulans, you know? And so I wondered if that was an example of a thought experiment where there is an actual practical use for it, or if I'm over analyzing it. Yeah. So just to clarify the question, the idea it would maybe be that, um, that, Stephen Hawking is considering science fiction hypotheticals and then he's drawing a practical conclusion that, you know, uh, I, you sh- so, I mean, I guess this is a little bit different from either the sort of way that Emerson is thinking about why he doesn't like, you know, moral thought experiments specifically or applied ethics, maybe specifically thought experiments and the way I was thinking of the sort of, uh, way that I think moral thought experiments can be legitimate because in this case it's neither like a hypothetical analogy for a real thing I sort of it is maybe or um, or like a way of testing a principle that you can apply to a real thing it's it's more like hey maybe this hypothetical is actually true <laughs> and so we should we should worry about that but I, I don't know I don't know how helpful that that is uh, Emerson what are your thoughts well I mean I think Hawking Hawking's point was like, hey, every time in history that a more technologically advanced civilization has come in contact with the less technologically advanced civilization, it's gone badly for the less advanced civilization. So I think that's true. I I don't know. But I mean, if he's right, it's not so much a thought experiment. He's just basing it off of, uh, you know, history. And he's just like, so, you know, the aliens, um, I hope they don't find us. (laughs) They might be fucked if they do. Yeah, or maybe even it's kind of a... uh... Structurally, maybe if it's kind of the opposite of the sort of thought experiment that you don't like, because what he's doing is he's uh, he's drawing conclusions about a sort of crazy science fiction thing that might be, that might or might not be true based on like things that have really happened in the real world. Yeah, exactly. And I actually, speaking of science fiction, though, like I actually would prefer philosophers to talk about fiction instead of thought because thought experiments are just really shitty fiction. Like if you talk about TV shows and movies and books instead, then that kind of corrects for the uncanny valley problem I was talking about. Yeah. 
No, that's an interesting point. I mean, I think that the, um, like, you often get things in fiction that are, uh, I mean, sometimes very close uh, to the sorts of things that would be in philosophical thought experiments. Um, like, one of my favorite examples, even though this is a thought experiment that sort of verges into the exactly the kind of territory earlier where I said that they weren't helpful, uh, that, or I was more skeptical of them. Let's let's maybe put it that way, because I'm just more skeptical about appeals to intuition in general, which is metaphysics. Um, but uh, but a very science fiction thought experiment in metaphysics that I still I still really like and, and find interesting is Derek Parfit's uh, uh, teletransporter example. You know examples and his uh, anyway he's got a bunch like this which are like basically examples about various exotic situations in which something strange would happen and there's a question about who the original person is, you know, that you, um, is the, you know, person steps into the teletransporter and then, you know, it, it fucks up and it spits out two versions of them on Mars and they have an equally good claim to be them and et cetera, et cetera. And I think he actually does draw some really interesting analogies from it. And then there's a short story, maybe it's a novella, I think it's just a short story by James Patrick Kelly called Think Like a Dinosaur, which is, um, I don't want to spoil it for anybody who hasn't read it, but I'd, I'd strongly recommend it. it. It sort of, I mean, I don't know if, I don't know if, if Kelly has read, uh, has read Parfit or not, you know, but it's like very close to that and, and sort of takes it in some very like darkly funny and, uh, and nasty ways, but, um, I guess not really funny, but, you know, certainly dark, uh, ways. And, um, and so like, I mean, I, certainly as fiction, right, something that's written by a fiction writer is going to be much better than something that's written by a philosopher. I mean, the, I mean, I guess the danger is that the thing that makes you like it better, and I mean, don't get me wrong, I mean, if it's just like, how do I want to spend my evening? I mean, I'll take the, the you know, I'll take the science fiction novel over the, you know, over the philosophy paper any time, but, uh, but the thing that makes you like it better in terms of correcting the Uncanny Valley problem is also the thing that would make it arguably less useful in terms of um, what I take to be the defensible use of thought experiments in, in morality, which is sort of isolating just the factors that uh, that we want to look at in order to test a principle to make sure that like we're not getting led astray by by sort of extraneous things that are are not relevant to that principle. Um, so so I don't know. I mean I, I don't you know. I, I, I think maybe like the actual version of it that's not shitty fiction, that's good fiction, you know, could be good in some ways, but it might be, you know, might be more misleading in some ways. Yeah. I mean, it's just in our actual lives there, we're not going to be able to get rid of those extraneous variables, quote unquote, extraneous. Like there's always going to be multiple interacting principles. So kind of like, yeah, if you're just trying to uh, test out a you know little principle, that's, that's fine. But I don't see how much relevance it's going to have if you're trying to, do like real world ethics where it's it's just never that straightforward which is why you know yeah like you said that's why i would like the fictional way of doing things more yeah i mean i, I agree it's never gonna be that straightforward but i mean i think at, at that point what we're actually talking about is something much more basic than like the value of thought experiments which is just the value of like arguments from principles in real world morality Maybe I can't. I just can't stop thinking about the Star Trek transporter. It's a murder machine. Don't get in it. Anyone who gets in it is suicidal, and um, they should they should seek help because clearly it kills you and creates a clone of you. 
Like, that's obviously what's happening. Yeah, that, that's definitely my very strong initial intuition, uh, although reading Parfit has just succeeded confusing me about it. But yeah. uh, I would... By the way, I'll say that there's something I, like that I always really enjoyed doing in intro classes where I would... I would ask people, um, you know, if they would get into the, you know, the tele, you know, the transporter, and you know, uh, like, a, would you take the free trip to Mars? You know, that uh, that works this way, right? And you sort of describe in great detail how it would work, and most people say no because exactly what you just said—it's a murder machine. But then say, okay, well, how many of you think that it's at least possible that that uh, we continue to exist after we die? And, you know, a lot of the people who said, don't get in, it's a murder machine, say, yeah, we continue to exist after you die, after we die. Don't get me wrong. I know there are ways of reconciling those, but I think there is at least a problem on the face of it because, um, you know, look, when you, when you say, I mean, even if you're not like a believer, even if you're just an agnostic, when you say like, oh, no one knows what happens to us after we die, what does that mean? Well, we know exactly what happens to your body after you die. There's no mystery about that, right? So, like, if uh, mm-hmm. uh, so, if you have a view of personal identity where your body on Earth being destroyed and not being what's walking around on Mars is what really matters, then you know it is. You know, it is. It gets a little bit not obvious why you think that the the being that's like being rewarded in heaven or suffering in hell is you. Yeah, you know, I think that if I became convinced that substance dualism was true in a particular way where I just have this one soul, and if I got in the transporter, yes, it would destroy my body and create a new body with new atoms constituted from the same blueprint, but my soul would just, like, you know, zip on over to that body and reattach to it, then yeah, I'd get in the Star Trek transporter. But I'd have to first, you know, become convinced of dualism. Yeah, yeah, um... And that the and that your <laughs> your soul is transported, which um, which there's a whole other can of worms there because if you say yeah, but why should I think my soul is transported? It's like okay, well, why should I think my soul continues to adhere to this constantly shifting bunch of you know molecules that that I'm in right now, right? I mean, what's the you know? I, I, it's not obvious to me that that's uh, that that's not the same problem, but this is really fun. Uh, so I think the fact that we're talking about Star Trek now maybe shows that uh, <laughs> that we've uh, that we, you know that we've run out of steam a little bit on the original topic. So maybe we should leave it there for today. But uh, this was this was a ton of fun. We need to do it again. Absolutely, man. Thanks for having me on. All right. Thanks.